please turn with me in your Bible to 2 Timothy this evening, and we're in chapter 1, verse 8. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, as we're going through 1 and 2 Timothy together. The parable of the sower. Is there anything wrong with the seed? Is there anything wrong with the sower? The sower is Christ. The seed is the word of God. We're into gardening at our home, and this year we ordered some heirloom seed that is not genetically modified. There's nothing wrong with the seed. But there could be problems with the soil, right? So if you do gardening, you know that it depends a lot on your soil. And Jesus gave us the parable of the sower to describe four parts, four areas of our hearts. Maybe you feel like you're not growing. You've been coming to Bible study for a couple of years now, or maybe it's been a decade now. It's maybe been this church or another church. You've been reading God's word some on your own, but you're not growing. And you just got this feeling that I'm kind of stuck And before I get into the message tonight, I want us to just examine briefly what's the condition of our heart. The first condition of the heart was a hard heart because the seed got thrown onto a pathway. Do you feel like you've been stepped on? You've maybe been hurt by other believers. There's some abuse that's taken place in your life years back, but your heart's just hard. And you really didn't come tonight with an expectation for God to move, for God to work, for God's word to be planted in your heart. You're the skeptic. You know what needs to happen with the hard heart? We've got to break up that fallow ground. We've got to allow God and his love to break up our hearts. And maybe in this moment, the Holy Spirit can just come and begin to soften our hearts. And I see areas of my heart in all four of these different soils. The other is this shallow heart. Where they get excited about the word. We get pumped up about the word. Oh, I'm so thankful for God's word. But then scripture tells us when persecution comes, when tribulation comes, because of the word, because we're trying to apply out the word, now life's a little more difficult and we didn't expect that. We just expected somehow that as soon as we started applying ourselves to, to the word, that the fruit was automatically gonna come. So the word of God gets choked out. The sun comes, the root didn't go very deep, and that plant gets gets choked out. Maybe the one that we can relate to the most is the third. In church, it's the crowded heart. It's the cares of this life. We get so busy with just trying to pay the bills, getting the groceries done, getting the laundry done. Believe me, I can relate to, to those things. That a whole week, a whole month goes by, and we really haven't given time to The seed, the seed's good, the sower's good, but my heart is crowded. It also says the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things. We start longing for other things other than God's word. That's the crowded heart with weeds and God wants to come in with his tender, loving hands of the gardener tonight and just begin to pull some weeds before we even get into the study. That we would prepare our hearts, that we would keep our heart with all diligence, because out of it flows the issues of life. But then there's the fourth condition of the heart, and that's the fruitful heart. That's the heart that hears the word, 
applies the word and God brings forth the fruit. God brings forth the increase. Our job is to receive it, then God blesses it, some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. Well, that's not fair. Some people are more fruitful than others. Well, we've got our wrong understanding of fruit. Fruit's not for comparison. Fruit's not for myself. Fruit is for God's glory and for others. It's to be enjoyed by others. So if I'm sitting here going, well, my life's not as fruitful as somebody else's life, I've gotten my eyes in the wrong place. Would you pray with me? And let's ask that God would prepare our hearts. Fathers, we get into your word tonight. We want to take first a look with inside of our own hearts. God, where our hearts are hard, where we've been trampled on, where we've been stepped on. God, would you soften our hearts right now through the power of the Holy Spirit? Would you please Melt our hearts, God. Where our hearts are shallow when it gets difficult and the time of testing comes and we give up, Lord, would you give us a deeper heart, a greater depth? God, it seems like my, my heart gets so crowded with the cares of this life and selfishness. And Lord, would you just right now begin to take those weeds out of our hearts? God, would you allow our hearts to be that soft soil, that good soil, where your word can come and be planted deep within our hearts and our lives. We love you, God. Bless this time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. As we get into the second half of 2 Timothy chapter 1, there's four exhortations. I find myself really gravitating towards God's commands and what he tells us and how to live our lives. But first, we've got to understand that these commands, they're saturated in grace. They're saturated in the gospel. They're saturated in God's power. It's God's working through us. As we read the New Testament, we see first what God has done for us. It is finished upon the cross, Jesus declared. His grace that's been poured out for forgiveness and freedom from sin God works within us, and then we work that out. And if we miss the grace, if we miss his work, if we miss what he's done and we just focus on the commands, it becomes a responsibility instead of a response. It becomes legalism instead of relationship. So Timothy, he gets these four really strong exhortations from Paul as Paul is in a dungeon, just about ready to be executed for his love for, for Jesus Christ, they need to be applied in our lives, but we first need to experience the grace. So we've entitled this message, Empowering Grace, because once we've tasted this grace, experienced this grace, not just one day past in our lives, but present in our lives this evening, then it provides the strength and the motivation to enter into these commands. Verse eight, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. You've been studying with us for a while. We always got to dig into this word therefore a little bit, don't we? We've got to wonder, what's it there for? It goes back to last week's study, verse seven. Do you remember God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind? Based on the fact that we have God's love and we have God's power and God's given us a, a sound mind, therefore, therefore is a conclusion statement. Therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Timothy is struggling with standing bold for the testimony of Jesus Christ. 
Paul, his mentor, his pastor, is in prison, about ready to be executed. He knows if he stands for the testimony of the Lord, there's certain suffering to come in his life. The cross was not popular. We look in second, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter one, where Paul says, I was determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came declaring the testimony of God. And to the Jews, the cross was a stumbling block. They saw the, the cross as, why would Jesus die upon the cross? Why would I need him to die for, for my sins? And then the Greeks just saw the cross as absolute foolishness. So if you came and you preached Jesus Christ dying for our sins, people would just look at you with absolute foolishness. We can relate to that. When we go outside of our Christian friends and we begin to talk about the cross, they look at us with foolishness. And it may be foolishness to men, but it's God's story and it's God's power. Remember Romans 1 verse 16 Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God unto salvation. It's our message. It's the message that God has given to us. It's the testimony of the Lord. Just like Timothy, we can wrestle with being ashamed of Jesus Christ, if we're honest. We're all in journey together. We're all traveling together on this path of following Jesus Christ. And there's times when I cower back a little bit. I can tell that it's an opportunity to speak of Christ, but I can feel myself shrinking back. And I always walk away from those times kicking myself and saying, oh, that was an opportunity. That was something that God gave me. I should have entered into to that. So we can relate with Timothy. And this is one of the exhortations that's given to us as well. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Why not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord? Because it's good. Amen. Chipotle is not ashamed of their burritos. Have you noticed that? <laughs> they just keep expanding. When I was in Florida in February on vacation, there was a Chipotle in Florida and I was rejoicing, you know? <laughs> they just keep expanding. The first Chipotle was right here in Denver, right in Denver, Colorado. And they never apologized for the great chicken that they have or the steak that they have. The mild salsa is good and the medium salsa is good and the, the hot salsa is too hot for me, but they don't apologize for it. You know, they're like, you know, if people come in and they're like, I like Chinese. Then they're like, well, you know, we're thinking about offering Chinese. That's, that's, we're gonna kind of add that in. We're gonna have fried rice and, and, and with the brown rice and the, and the white rice. You know, they're like, we got a good burrito. If you want a burrito, this is where you come. Here it is. We've only got four options, maybe five, and that's it. Take it or leave it. People are standing out the door everywhere you go to get a Chipotle burrito. If they're not ashamed of their stinking burritos, why are we ashamed of Christ? He's good. He died for sinners. Why should we be ashamed of that? Why should we back away from that? I think of Christ as he hung naked upon the cross. He hung unashamed for us. He was bold in his love for us. So why should we be unashamed? So next time a family member is talking about the things of Christ and you know, man, if I go there, it's not gonna go very well. Or you're hanging out with the neighbors and God just drops a conversation into your lap. He sets it up for you. 
Go, Lord, I'm not gonna be ashamed of you. I'm not gonna be ashamed of your truth. I'm not gonna be ashamed of this message of salvation. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. As we read this section of 1 Timothy, it seems that there's people that are ashamed of Paul's chains. That instead of standing behind Paul in this moment of suffering, they questioned his life and thought there was some kind of compromise in his life, thus he was suffering, thus he was in the prison, in the dungeon. Kind of like Job's friends, remember? Oh, Job, you must have some unconfessed sin. There must be something wrong with your life. We've grown past this to some degree, but it's still something that comes up when someone suffers. There's always people that are fishing for something, fishing for some unconfessed sin and saying, well, it must be because you've done this wrong or, or you've done that wrong. And there were those that were turning their back upon Paul. And so part of what Timothy's dealing with is also not being ashamed of Paul, of saying, yes, Paul's my pastor, Paul's my mentor, and we're linked up together in ministry. Here's the next exhortation. But share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. Remember, Paul is passing the reins to Timothy. He's gonna be in heaven. He's gonna be in glory. And one of the foundational things for Timothy as a man of God and as a pastor is that he embraces suffering for the gospel's sake. That he doesn't shrink back. That he doesn't have fear. That he knows if I step out with the gospel, if I speak the truth in this situation, suffering is no doubt gonna come my way, but I'm embracing the suffering for the gospel's sake. Why is suffering for the gospel so worthwhile? A few things to consider. First, Christ suffered, and he's our master, and Jesus told us we're not greater than our master. So if Jesus suffered, we're gonna suffer. If we walk in his footsteps, there's certain suffering that's gonna come for the gospel, but also in suffering for the gospel is it's worthwhile. It's a cause that's worth suffering for. Sometimes I suffer quite often for my own stupidity, sticking my foot in my mouth, saying things that I shouldn't have said and regret saying it. We often suffer for foolish decisions or sinful decisions or the own turmoil inside of our souls, but if we're privileged to suffer for the gospel's sake, it's worthwhile because many times when we suffer for the gospel, that's when God's glory is seen. That's how we know that God loves us is because of how Jesus suffered on the cross. And many times, an unbelieving world sees the reality of God in the church when the church suffers. Jesus suffered. It's a worthwhile cause. But one of the things that I find to be most meaningful about suffering is it gives us a unique opportunity to know Christ in a greater way. Paul actually prayed to know the sufferings of Christ, to have fellowship in Christ's sufferings. He knew that he could only know this much of Christ unless he entered into suffering like Jesus, and then he would appreciate more what Jesus went through for him. That's a bold prayer. That's something we should probably consider before we pray it. We don't want to just start praying things that we don't mean to sound spiritual. God, do I really mean that? I think we can all look back on our lives, though, and reflect, oh, this was a tough time. This was a lot of suffering. I would never want to go through it again. I'm not necessarily signing up for suffering, but I know so much more about Christ because of this 
season of suffering in my life. There's an aspect of Jesus that can't be learned in the sanctuary. It can't be learned in commentaries. It can't be learned in podcasts. Those are all wonderful. But there's a certain aspect of Christ that can only be learned as we suffer for righteousness sake, as we suffer for the gospel. Jesus told us when you suffer for righteousness sake, rejoice because great is your reward in heaven. Paul's inviting Timothy into the suffering. We're pretty comfortable as American Christians, aren't we? We don't have a lot of suffering in our lives. Decisions for us may be, you know, should, should I buy these pair of jeans or should I buy those shoes? Or, you know, can I get this many groceries or can I get this many groceries? Can I fill up my gas tank halfway or do I have the money to fill it up all the way? And much of the rest of the world, they're struggling to see if they'll eat today. That's really the challenge that, that's faced before them. So it can be easy for us to say, I don't want to embrace something that involves suffering. I want to live a comfortable life. But God here is inviting us into something that's worthwhile enough to suffer for. Now we get into what God has done for us. There's two commands in the front, two commands in the end, and in the middle, it's like a sandwich. You've got the good stuff in the middle, and the middle is what God's done for us who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. It's his work. He has saved us. He has called us. He brought us to himself and he called us with a holy calling. Please catch this, not according to our works. Aren't you thankful for that? None of us would be saved here tonight if it was for our works. If we had to try to earn or deserve our salvation, there would be no salvation. To try to earn or deserve our calling It's not according to our works. I want you to notice there's two categories here, and this gets me really excited. One is our salvation, that it's by God's grace, but also our calling is by God's grace. I think this is what we leave out a lot of times as believers. We know that we're saved by God's grace, but then we think the whole rest of it's up to us. (laughs) Well, God's called me to love my wife as Christ loves the church. I'm gonna accomplish that by works. If I just try harder, I'm going to be a better husband. If I try harder, I'm going to be a submissive wife. You know, if I just work a little bit harder, I'm going to finally be a good witness and I'm going to fulfill the Great Commission. I I just need to put in a little bit more effort. That either leads to condemnation or pride, doesn't it? One of the two. And notice that it says, your holy calling is not by grace. Or it's not by works, excuse me, it's by grace. God's waiting for someone who's dependent upon his grace that comes before God and says, God, I want to live a righteous life for your glory, but I know I can't do it through my own hard work. I need your grace, your unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor to flow into my life. It's not according to works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he's given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. So God saved us and he gave us a calling, not because we earned it or we deserved it, but because we were weak and we were foolish and it was for his own purpose of grace where people could stand by and go, you know what, that knucklehead, God loves that knucklehead right there. God God uses them. I can't believe that that God uses them. I know them and they, they mess up. 
and they fail and, and they fall short, but it's very clear that, that God's doing a work in and through their life. And I see God changing them. I see them becoming more like Christ and I know that this is something supernatural. This is something that can't be explained by men. It's by his own purpose and it's by his own grace. This is so freeing for me personally. If God called me as a pastor based on on my works, there couldn't be one Saturday, one Sunday, one Wednesday that I was worthy to come up and teach God's word. And I know that may shock you and it may be a good time to go find a more worthy pastor, you know? Because they're out there. It's according to God's grace. I can come and teach God's word, not because of who I am, but because of who God is. I can share Jesus with a neighbor, not because I had a good day or I had a bad day, but God loves my neighbor. (laughs) Jesus died for my neighbor. And it's according to God's grace that he wants to work in and through their lives. It's according to his grace and his purposes. And notice when God gave it. He gave it before time began in Christ Jesus. As you read Genesis, please understand that God knew that Adam and Eve were going to blow it royally. It wasn't that moment that the father's like, man, this kind of took me by surprise. I think this Garden of Eden thing was going to work. I really thought they were going to stay away from the forbidden fruit. It says that Jesus was slain before the foundations of the world. In Jesus Christ, the grace was given beforehand. The grace and his purpose and his calling upon our lives was given to us before we even received Christ as our Savior. He loved us while we were still sinners. He demonstrated his love towards us. Maybe you feel like you've fallen a little bit too far for God's call and plan in your life to be fulfilled. You know God loves you. You know you're God's child, but you had a wayward season. And you're coming back and you're struggling and you're going, can God use me? Absolutely. Why? Because his calling is according to his grace. And when we understand this grace, it's the power of God. Did you notice it in verse eight? It said, to share in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. We don't have to try to muster up the strength to go through suffering. It comes through the power of God distributed through the grace of God. In verse 10, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. The grace was given in Christ before the world began, but it was revealed at the incarnation when God came in human flesh. The Gospel of John tells us that Jesus came in the fullness of grace and truth, grace upon grace. It's true that there's a knowledge that you can have of God through creation, as you're alone observing God's creation. But one of the things that you don't get from observing God's creation is his grace. You understand his power and his majesty, but you don't understand his love, his grace, and his kindness. That comes through Jesus Christ. That's revealed in Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus is the express image of the Father. So as you see the grace of Christ, as he died for our sins, as he rose again, it's revealed in Christ Jesus, and he's abolished death. Think about that for just a moment. He's abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 
You think about something being abolished, what comes to your mind? We think about abolishing slavery in, in the United States, doing away with it completely, something being destroyed. Jesus in his power and his grace as it's been poured out into our lives, it's destroyed death. Those who are in Christ Jesus, death is not something that needs to be feared. Death wears your sting. Death is our ultimate graduation where we go home to be with the Lord. We sang about it tonight in worship. What a wonderful experience that's gonna be. That awaits us. Death has been abolished and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The gospel, Christ's death and resurrection, it's brought life into us. I was meditating this week and just thinking about, I'm so thankful that Christ got a hold of my life. Aren't you thankful for that as well? And if you don't know Christ, he's ready to get a hold of your life tonight. We can remember some of the places that we were, the thought patterns that we had, the character that we had before Christ got a hold of us. When Christ brings life, it's eternal and it's life now. It's life right now. If you think it's hard following Christ and the suffering for this gospel is a bad gig, just remember what stupidity you were in before you received Christ as your savior. That's really difficult and that's a life of suffering, but Jesus has brought life and it's a life that's worth celebrating. Immortality to light through the gospel, this gift of the gospel is there's going to be no more decay. Don't you long for your glorified body? Yeah. I think it's the curse of the tall people. If you're a tall person, I'd like to know if this happens to you too, where your neck just gets all kinked up, you know, and it goes out for three or four days or, or three or four weeks, and then you, you walk around like this, and somebody says, hey, Eric, and you're like, how you doing? Good to, good to see you. I think a lot of times it's because you got bad posture and you're, you're talking to the five foot one person down here like this <laughs> and you're kinking your neck, right? And, and I'm looking forward to the day when I go home to be with the Lord that there, there's no more neck aches. There's, there's no more people that I love and hearing that they've got cancer. There's no more doing funerals. Being in God's presence where death is no more and he's wiped away our tears. This is the wonderful work that God has done for us. This is Paul's personal response to God's grace. He says, to which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher to the Gentiles. God had called him to three things here in this verse. The first is a preacher and it means a herald. He was a messenger of the gospel. And we see Paul doing that effectively Everywhere he went, he wanted to communicate the gospel to people. Their need for their gospel, their, their sinfulness. God's love and his death and his provision with his son upon the cross. Also, he's an apostle, which means he was sent out. As you look at his life in the book of Acts, he went from city to city, place to place. God used him to start churches and then he would move on to the next place. But he was also a teacher, and notice who he was a teacher to. He was a teacher to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. It was hard for Paul to accept this calling at different points. He wanted to primarily go to the Jews, being a Jew, but God wanted his primary focus to be the Gentiles. Sometimes we have a hard time accepting our calling. We look at someone else's calling, and we go, that looks like fun. I wish I could do what they do. I've always had a heart for these people. And God says, no, 
I want you to go to the Gentiles. I want you to go to this group over here. And Paul accepted that. And there's wisdom for us to accept where God has called us. Verse 12, he says, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. Paul knew with being appointed to preach, appointed to sent out to start churches, appointed to teach, that suffering was going to come with that. But he says the suffering... He wasn't ashamed of it. He wasn't embarrassed of, of the suffering or, or felt that he had done something wrong to bring this suffering upon his life. We see his letter to the Corinthians. He lists some of his suffering and he went through a tremendous amount of, of suffering. Now he's encouraging Timothy to apply God's grace, this grace that saved him, this grace that's abolished death, this grace that's given him a holy calling, then use that grace, allow that power to flow through you to do this, verse 13. Hold fast the pattern of sound words, which you've heard from me in faith and in love, which are in Christ Jesus. Hold fast the pattern of sound words, which you've heard from the Apostle Paul. How did Paul give those words in faith and in love in Christ Jesus? This ties back to 1 Timothy. It's sound doctrine. It's who Jesus Christ is. It's the book of Acts and the epistles. This pattern of, of sound words. You see, Paul didn't change his message. Paul didn't change his approach. It was Jesus Christ and him crucified. He saw the lifestyle of Paul. He saw the pattern of sound words. And he says, Timothy, I want you to hold fast to this. I know it's been a reoccurring bell that's come up in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, but God knows we need to hear it. We need to hold on to God's word. We need to be people of, of God's word. Amen? Amen? To not lose sight of it. It's very easy for us to lose grip of, of God's word. Making that decision individually and as a congregation saying, I'm not going to be about my will. I'm not going to be about whatever trends come and go. I'm about God's word. I'm going to hold fast to God's word, this sound doctrine that's been entrusted. In verse 14, that good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. So once again, we see what God is doing. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. You don't have to try to live out this calling in your own power, but yet God wants us to take our will and apply it to something. It says, I want you to keep that good thing that was trusted to you, that was committed to you. Keep it, but keep it through the power of the Holy Spirit. So what might this look like? What were the good things that were given to Timothy? Hey, salvation. He's a child of God. The calling to, to be a pastor there, there in Ephesus, this genuine faith that was first in his mom and his grandma. So these are some of the things that have been entrusted to him. So how would he keep it through the power of the Holy Spirit? God, I just pray that you'd keep me close to you, that my heart would never grow callous, that I'd always have a great appreciation and adoration for the gospel and what you've done for me and your death and resurrection. God, it's by your grace that I'm here pastoring in Ephesus. It's hard, it's difficult. There's things that I don't understand what to do, but Holy Spirit, would you help me to do this in a way that glorifies you? So church, what has God entrusted to you? What has he given to you? Has he given you a ministry at your job with some unbelievers? Has he blessed you with a family? Single folks, college kids, high school kids? Has he given you some really awesome friends, some neat opportunities? 
Are you serving with the, the people of God? Are you having people into your home? Are you serving here at RMC, serving believers around the city? God's allowed you to teach in one fashion or another. Say, okay, Lord, you've given this to me. I don't want to take it for granted. I want to keep it. But Lord, I'm going to need the help through the power of your Holy Spirit. God, you've given me this amazing marriage. Now would you help me to keep it through the power of your Holy Spirit? Would you be the glue that holds our marriage together? Oh, Lord, you bless me with these children. I don't deserve these children. And through the power of your Holy Spirit, God, would you help me to be a good parent? Keep the things that God has entrusted to you. Paul begins to share a little bit of what he's going through in these next few verses. This you know that all those in Asia have turned away from me, among who are Phygelus and Hermogenes. That's quite a statement when you think about it. Everybody who is in Asia has turned against the Apostle Paul. This challenges some of our perceptions of Paul's life. Now when we speak of Paul, when we open the Pauline epistles, it's such joy to our hearts. I don't think I've ever met a believer that didn't respect the Apostle Paul. But in his lifetime, in his golden years, at the end of his ministry, when he should have been Pastor Emeritus, and getting an office at the church, right? Instead, everybody turned against him. Everybody was second-guessing him throughout all of Asia. This encourages us. Are we serving God for the accolades of men, or are we serving God because God's God, and he's our Lord? And whatever people think of us, they think of us. Paul's life didn't end with a lot of friends on Facebook. You know what I'm saying? Verse 16 the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anisiphorus. There's just some great names. Any ladies expecting here tonight could, could name your son Anisiphorus. We could just call him Forus. He'd be the first Anisiphorus in the nursery at RMC. Mercy to the household of Anisiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. Sometimes we think that everybody's going to be an Apostle Paul. That to be effective for the Lord, you're going to need to be a a missionary. You're going to need to be a a preacher, a, a teacher. God gives different callings to different people, and the important thing is to note your calling. And they're all equal in God's sight, and they're all equally important. And Anisiphorus isn't starting churches. We don't see him as a strong evangelist, but you know what? He's really good at refreshing people. He's really good at encouraging people. And guess what? Even the Apostle Paul needed encouragement. And Paul was discouraged at many points in his journey. And he says that Anisiphorus, he he often refreshed me. Not just on, on one occasion. And he wasn't ashamed of my chains. He wasn't one of those that was a skeptic and casting Paul aside because Paul was in prison. He broke through all of that to enter into to Paul's life. And we see a couple occasions here. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. Paul's imprisonment is in Rome. He's executed in Rome. His life ends in Rome. Onesiphorus shows up in Rome, maybe on a business trip. Maybe he spent a lot of extra money just to get to Rome to greet Paul because he knows that Paul's in this prison. And what does he do? He's very intentional. He sought me out. 
He got out his smartphone and he put in the Apostle Paul and got directions to the prison and says, I'm gonna go visit this guy. Maybe there were some Roman officials that are like, "Uh, now who are you and you wanna go see who? Sorry, not gonna happen today. And Anisiphorus was very zealous and he went through every means possible to make sure that he could meet with Paul and find Paul. And this ministers to Paul's heart and this is recorded for us for all of eternity. The word of God is gonna be with us in heaven. We're gonna meet Anisiphorus and God commends him for refreshing the apostle Paul. In verse 18, the Lord grant to him that he may be found mercy from the, from the Lord in that day. And you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. So not only did he minister to Paul in Rome, but he also ministered to Paul in Ephesus. Many times, many times. If you're someone who enjoys refreshing other believers, may God multiply you. We need more refreshers, don't we? It seems like we all have the gift of depleting people. We're all really good at that. One of the things that God has given to each and every person is an emotional tank. It's how we feel about life. And that tank just continually gets depleted as we go throughout our days. We're sinful, we interact with sinful people, and it's just like a gas tank, it goes And every single one of us need to be refreshed, don't we? And we get refreshed by spending time with the Lord. We get refreshed in worship. That's the primary way that we get refreshed. We see that in the Apostle Paul. His primary source of refreshment was the Lord. But also, God has designed us to receive refreshment from other people. You get a hug from a friend, a family member, the emotional tank starts going up a little bit. Someone says, Hey, you look nice today. Family member, friend, goes up a little bit. And then you go to work and someone goes, where did you get that? The emotional tank goes back down a little bit, right? You get a call from a friend, a family member, says, hey, what are you doing tonight? Want to hang out? Emotional tank goes up a little bit. It happens through people. And sometimes we don't realize it, but we're like the nail in everybody's tire. We like come up to people and we just love to discourage and complain and grumble and have a bad attitude and they might be having a, grab, a great day and by the time they're done hanging out with us, we've just defleted their, their tank. And it's a transformation of God to change our character to where we begin to be someone who refreshes others. And don't just assume that anybody is beyond needing refreshment. Applying this in our homes. Be a refresher to your wife. Be a refresher to your husband, to your kids. Build them up. Anybody can tear them down. We get teared down everywhere we go. As we interact with believers, be a refresher. I wonder if we don't get the how here, do we? How did Anisophorus refresh Paul? Did he know that Paul loved Snickers bars and he was in prison? He's like, Snickers satisfies. <laughs> and I know, that, I know that Jesus satisfies and, 
And Paul's close with Jesus, but I also know he really likes Snickers bars. So I'm gonna bring him one, you know? Refreshing. I don't think anyone ever gets discouraged from someone bringing them something that they like by surprise. Hey, I know you like this. Here you go. I'm thinking of this believer. I'm gonna write him a little note and I'm, I'm gonna pray for him. It takes thought. It takes a little bit of creativity. But there's those steps of love, the steps of faith that God uses to bring refreshment into the lives of believers. So we've seen these exhortations tonight. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord. He's way better than a Chipotle burrito. Don't be ashamed of him. Share in the suffering of the gospel. Have we settled that in our hearts? Okay, Lord. I'm not signing up for suffering. I don't want to receive suffering out of my own stupidity. But if there's real and genuine suffering that comes from the gospel, I'm not gonna shy away from it because you haven't given me the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. To hold fast the pattern of sound words. God, I'm committed to sound doctrine, to keep the good thing that was entrusted to us. But may we not miss what God has done and is doing for us in this text. The power of God was mentioned. The grace of God was mentioned. His own purpose, his his own grace, the Holy Spirit. And then finally, we have a great example of refreshment in Onesiphorus. Would you stand with me and let's pray together. God, we want to take a moment to pause, to think of your grace in our lives, that you pursued us while we were yet sinners, that you chose us, you brought us unto salvation, that your grace is continuing to be active in our lives with the calling that you've given us. You've given us a holy calling and your grace transforms us, sanctifies us, equips us, uses us, and we give you glory for your grace. We don't wanna take anything away from your work in our lives. May it be fresh tonight in our lives. We think about our life before Christ. We think about our own struggles presently, but God, you love us. You're so good. And God, we want to respond to that grace. At times we are ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. God, would you make us bold? Would you make us unashamed? May we not shrink back from the testimony, your testimony, God. You've entrusted so many good things to us and we can't keep them on our own power and our own might. We fail so quickly, but we want to keep those things through the Holy Spirit that you've given to us. It must be a lot easier to slip off the tracks than we realize to depart from sound teaching. And so God, would you help us to dig into your word more than we ever have before? Would you give us a hunger for your word, a commitment to hold fast? You know us, God. We, we don't want to suffer. It's, I don't think anybody does, but we see the suffering of you, Jesus. We see the outcome of that suffering. And Lord, would you help us to settle in our hearts that suffering for the gospel is worthwhile. Suffering for the gospel is a privilege. Jesus, your back was beaten. It says, by your stripes we were healed. And Jesus, would you heal hearts tonight where there's bitterness and unforgiveness and lust and covetousness, 
Lord, all those things that we struggle with as believers, Jesus, we cry out to you tonight. We're desperate for you. We need you to work in our hearts, God. Work in my heart, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, if I could get everybody's attention, this is the most important part of the service, is please hear this, is there's a real need for Jesus Christ. God wouldn't send his son to be brutally murdered upon a cross if there wasn't a reason for it. And the reason is I'm a sinner and you're a sinner. And the only way for us to be saved and have eternal life is through the blood of Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus even prayed if there was any other way for us to be saved other than for him to have to take the cup of suffering. He asked the father for that, but there was no other way. So he said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. All of this to say that God died for you. He died for me. And he calls us with an invitation. He knocks at the door. And he says, if anyone hears my voice, open up the door and I'll come in with him and sup with him. I'll come in and dine with him, be with him. God's been preparing you for this moment to make this decision to accept Christ as your savior. And we talked a lot about in our study tonight and this is the decision point. And as we sing this last song, there's gonna be a ministry team available and you come down and let somebody know on the ministry team, I'm ready to receive Christ as my savior. I understand I'm a sinner. I turn away from my sin and I receive this grace and forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ. Also, prayer is powerful, and if you need prayer tonight, we'd count it a real privilege to pray with you. Just take a few moments, and if there's something on your heart, we'd love to pray with you. So may God bless you and keep you. May he meet you in a special way this week. May he give us strength. May you experience his, his grace tonight and this week in a special way.